Lord, we are, again, thank you, thankful for your word, and we ask, Lord, this morning as we humble ourselves before you, and Lord, before your revealed word, that you would have freedom with us, Lord, that we, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would make things known to us, that we would see the, not only the, the, the historical setting of this and the impact that brings to our lives, but Lord, also the, the future-looking realities, Lord, of uh, of what it is you're revealing in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to think through um, your word in such a way, Lord, that would, uh, that would enable us to see what it is that you have done for us and what it is that you are calling us to be as your children. I ask, Lord, for help and strength, and, uh, Lord, that your word would be preached and proclaimed, Lord, faithfully and for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, if you are to, to fly into the Bay Area or out of the Bay Area, you will probably fly out of one of three airports, SFO, which would be San Francisco International, Oakland, um, a lot of people love to fly out of Oakland, a little bit more expensive depending on where you're going, and then there's also San Jose. If you can't get a flight out of the other two places, that's another option. You don't want to go to Sacramento, it's way too far. But if you fly out of any of those three airports and you have the opportunity of getting a window seat, it is quite a sight to behold. And I don't know if you have taken that in yourself as someone who has flown either into or out of the Bay Area, um, but there's, a, there's an incredible beauty to this place that we call our home. And one of the things you will notice, first of all, is, is the basin of the Bay, and then surrounding the bay are all sorts of things. If you were to, to look north, you would see Mount Tamalpais rising up, um, way up high. You would look to the east and you'd see the, the Oakland Hills or the, the ridge of hills that go along the eastern side of the bay. If you were to look um, down to the south, you would, you would take in the thick forests of Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, again, just another beautiful part of the Bay Area. And as you look west, you'll see again the ridge of the peninsula going on there. And, and, and the bay sits in this, this basin, so to speak. And I'm trying to, trying to paint a picture here to, to say that there's something about the topography of the land uh, that we see as we're flying over the land. If you were to get a map of the bay area, it would be flat. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to take in what that topography looks like. Um, but also, if you were to fly, you would, you would see once you got over some of those ridges, there'd be another mountain that would be rising up, and that would be Mount Diablo, right? Now, I want you to imagine, if you could, please, that you could open up your Bible and that you could rub your hands across the Word of God and you could feel the topography of Scripture. You could, you could feel where the valleys are. You could feel where the ridges are. You could feel where the mountains are. And there's a sense in which this morning, friends, that we are coming uh, in First and Second Samuel to a particular topographical place. If you were actually to think about the beginning of the book of First and Second Samuel, you would have found the people of Israel in a very, very deep valley, just like Death Valley. If you remember, at that point in time, there was no king in Israel, Right? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It is out of that valley that God begins to move. 
and we begin to see some hills along the way. Hannah's prayer uh, in chapter 2 is one of those small hills that kind of gets us up to, to look at the lay of the land. And as we have journeyed through this book, um, we've come to uh, a whole bunch of other smaller hills or even smaller mountains. The birth and ministry of Samuel. Samuel restoring the word of God to Israel. David's defeat of Goliath. David's friendship with Jonathan. David's meeting up with Abigail and so on. These are all, I want to say, little hills or, or growing mountains in the story. But there are also valleys. Things like Eli's oversight of the temple and Eli's death and the death of his sons. Israel's rebellion and choosing Saul as king and Israel's standing in fear of mighty Goliath. Saul's relentless pursuit of David. Saul's death. Abner's death. These are all valleys in the story. But the storyline of, of the big picture of, of these two books being brought together is a, is a slow and steady climb that is taking us to the top of a mountain. And it is that mountain peak that we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. You may not have noticed that. You may not have considered that as we read through this section of Scripture. You might just breeze through here. But this, friends, is a focal point in the Word of God. This is a mountaintop, so to speak, in the storyline of the redemption plan. Because in this passage, we see some significant things that God is doing in establishing his earthly kingdom. And as uh, we think about the kingdom of God, I like what Graham Goldsworthy says, the kingdom of God can be described in this way, as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And here what we're going to find is... God's king set on his throne, and a kingdom established under that king. And we're going to find a place that becomes central to the people of Israel. This kingdom is unfolding. This kingdom is being established, and this is all part of God's divine, redemptive plan. It's not over yet but it is a mountain on the path toward getting to the goal of accomplishing that redemption plan. So in 2 Samuel 5, God records for us a collage of events that are in, intended to give us a proper view of his newly established kingdom. A kingdom where God's promises are coming to fulfillment in David. And then, because we're followers of Christ, we recognize the and beyond. Because the focal point here isn't just to stop at David. We understand that this focal point is, is anticipating that son of David, that king of kings, that lord of lords, who is Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's a collage of events. In other words, what we read here in chapter 5, is not necessarily in chronological order. There is some chronology in some of the sections, but this is really not listed out for us in a chronological way. But these are different events that took place over the time of David's rule in this kingdom. You might think of it in this way. 
uh, what we have here in chapter 5 is kind of like a, a, a yearbook. You guys ever flip through a yearbook? You certainly have the, you know, here are all the sophomores, here are all the freshmen, here are all the juniors, and here are the seniors. But then throughout the yearbook, you have these pages where it's just like a, a collage of pictures of, of events that took place throughout that year. And so you kind of have an idea, okay, this is, you know, kids... You know, the, the social stuff. And you have all these different kind of pictures, but one's from, you know, from September, another one's from December, another one's from October, and then you have something in, in May. It's a collage. And they are all significant. They're all windows to help you have an understanding of what took place during that year, to give you a picture of what the year was like with these students attending that school. And what we have in chapter 5 is like that, we have this collage of events that are put together to give us an understanding, to paint a picture of what David's newly established kingdom was like. And they're reminding us and revealing to us that God's promises are coming to fulfillment in David. Where God's people, that would be Israel and Judah, are in God's place, that would be Jerusalem, under God's rule and that would be King David. Now, the question for us then is this. How are God's promises coming to fulfillment in David? And that's going to be our task this morning to see. Let me give you them up front briefly here. In David becoming king over Israel. Secondly, in David capturing Jerusalem and establishing his home there. And thirdly, in David defeating the Philistines. Now let's jump into this incredible and beautiful and significant section of God's word. This is all coming to fulfillment in David specifically, and first of all, in David becoming king. First of all, I want you to notice that David is, affir is affirmed as king. Verse 1, then all the tribes of Israel came. Now that isn't literally every person, right? But th th we see in, in verse 5, the... the, the, the um, I should say a little later on, we see that these, these individual representatives are the elders of the tribes that are coming. So the tribes of Israel come, and these are the, the northern tribes. These are the ones that were in rebellion against David as the king of, of, of Judah. And they come, and they're saying three things. First of all, they're saying, we're family. We're family. Notice what the passage says here. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. That is intimate language. That's the kind of language we, we find in, in Genesis chapter 2, talking about the man and the woman that God created. She is what? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is the beautiful picture of the intimacy of marriage. And so they're saying here, we are bone and flesh. We are family. Not only that, you are truly our champion. Notice what they say in times past. This is verse 2. When Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. What are they saying there? You are actually the reason. You are the one. The let out and brought in is the idea of going out to battle, defending the nation, securing the borders, protecting the people. We recognize Saul was king, but we recognize that you are actually the one that accomplished that. You are the one who was our champion. 
at that point in time. The third thing is they're saying, you are truly our promised shepherd. It says, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. The writer of 2 Samuel here is wanting us to see and to, to feel uh, what the, the elders are, are citing here, that this is God's promise coming to fulfillment in David. This is what they're realizing. This is what they are saying. This is what they are testifying. And that no matter the opposition to God's promised king, and there were plenty, and we saw that, God will still bring it to pass. Saul tried to kill David. David would have found himself in countless difficult situations. The rebellion of the, the northern tribes and the so-called friends, these are all just pictures that we've looked at recently that challenge God's promises actually taking place. But none of these obstacles would hinder God fulfilling his promises. And we've, we've beaten that drum. That, that nail has been hammered over the last few chapters. But it, it, the plane lands here by the testimony of the elders speaking here to David. God's promises are sure in spite of deliberate opposition. And friends, we, we, we need to settle in on that. We need to rest in that truth. When there's opposition, even if it's deliberate, that doesn't change God's promises at all. But we want, to, we want to shift focus now and move on in, in this account. And notice not only that David was a firm king, but David here is anointed as king. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So the elders of Israel come, and they come for two reasons. Number one, to make a covenant with David. Again, there's this intimacy here. There's this uniting now of the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Israel and Judah now becoming one nation with one king. And so they anoint David over Israel. That's the second reason why they came, to covenant with him and then to anoint him. And it's worth noting here that it is at Hebron where David was anointed king of Judah it's now at Hebron that David is anointed king of Israel, again, bringing the house of Saul and the house of David together under this new king of Israel. So the king has been established um, and, uh, the, 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 and knit together bone and flesh with God's people. One king, one nation, one God. Now, friends, just, just feel the impact of that. This is not just some, you know, just passing reality that's in the story. This is something that has been building up in the story. The promise to David that he would one day be what? King. And we saw a step in that right direction when he was anointed king of Judah. But now, by God's providence, with great opposition, he is established as king, both of Israel now and of Judah. And we began our time in First and Second Samuel with a devastating and hopeless picture of Israel there in Judges. There was no king in Israel. But now, a few years later, they have a king, and he is a king that is uniting them together. He was the, 
man after God's own heart. That's not saying that he was the kind of man who had the character that he was after God. Man after God's own heart is saying this is, this is God's heart who's looking for a particular kind of man. This is the man that God wants, and he has resolved that now in the person of David. Still, and we know this because we've read on in the story, um, in order to get there, um, God's chosen um, king would have to face opposition. And he would continue, even from this day, to face opposition. But he still established his king. The nations are brought together. Now, in verse 4, we find this, this summary. Verse 4 and 5 There's a summary statement here. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. That's the total amount. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So it's rounded up here to 40 years. So for the next 33 years, David would rule as king over this combined Israel, right? Called Israel, but it's the combining of those two together. And that kingship responsibility is likened in Scripture to shepherding. In fact, this is the first time the image of shepherding is used to describe one of the leaders of God's people. The king was looked at by God as an under-shepherd. And all of us who are in here that are elders, you know, little bells going off because that's what we have been called to do with his church. The king was in place as a vehicle by which God then could bless his people, could shepherd his people, could guide his people, and so that that king was not to be about himself. He was about to be about honoring God and caring for the people that he was ruler over. Interesting, isn't it, that a shepherd boy whom God anointed as king in Bethlehem would now be given the responsibility of shepherding his people Israel. These shepherding qualities. Sadly, that image continues to be used in the Bible, and in particular in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel challenges and confronts and, and contends with the, the leaders of Israel, and he says in, in chapter 34 that you are feeding yourselves and not the sheep. The kings at that point in time, the leaders of Israel, had stopped caring for the sheep and only began caring for themselves, looking out for themselves, only protecting themselves and, and getting fat off the people. But God's promise remained to his beloved, but divided Israel at that point in time, in Ezekiel's time, and Judah still remained. And notice, just to listen to what it says in Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 24 through 28. My servant David, so this is later speaking here, so this is talking about the descendant of David, who would be Jesus, the Messiah. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall ha all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and all their children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever." I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. 
My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel with my sanctuary, uh, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, friends, there's a lot to unpack there. That's for another time. But the emphasis here is there is this future promise about the reign of Christ on the earth to his people. And that's why in the New Testament, we find Jesus coming and using the image once again, saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So here we have a king, a king who unites the nations, a king who is a shepherd to the people, a king who ruled in this new kingdom as an under-shepherd before God. Secondly, in David, we see the capturing of Jerusalem. This is all part of these promises being fulfilled in David. It's fulfilled in the fact that he becomes king. It's fulfilled in the fact that David captures Jerusalem. We're moving from a, a positive encounter with the elders of Israel to a negative encounter with the occupants of Jerusalem, the Jebusites. It's interesting, isn't it, that in all of our wanderings through First and Second Samuel, this is really the first time that the city of Jerusalem has even come up. Because at that point in time, Jerusalem was not the central city. You had Hebron, where a lot of the activity is taking place in Judah. You have Manaim, up in the northern part, where uh, the house of Saul set up its rule with Ishbosheth as king. But now the focus changes here, and it turns to Jerusalem, and there are certain people in Jerusalem called the Jebusites. Now it's worth um, us asking ourselves the question. Do we, do we tend to see the hand of God only in the good times of life? Or do we have room to see God's sovereign purposes in the rough times? I mean, here's David, anointed king. Tribes are united. Why can't he just kind of like, <sighs> you ever feel that way? God, I've, I've, you, you've done all this for me now. I've worked hard and we've gotten to this place. Can I just now relax? All right, the kingdom's been established. The king is on the throne. The tribes are united. And yet, there's still work to be done. And God is at work in even those rough times. And for us, those rough times can be times when others do stuff against us. Times when we create our own messes, and we're good at that. Times when there's, there really isn't any explanation for the trials that we're going through, and I think we, we wrestle and we struggle with that too. In those difficult times, do we see the loving hand of God, or as all we can see is the harsh, disciplining hand of God? The truth of the matter is this, friends. God is sovereign both in the good times and in the bad times, to bring about his will and to fulfill his promises. And so even as David, being a king, could settle in and enjoy the kingdom, there was still work that needed to be done. There were still tough decisions. There were still encounters that needed to take place. And so here, as a part of God's sovereign purposes, David would go up against the Jebusites at Jerusalem, and it won't be pretty. Now, Jerusalem at this time was a walled city with a fortress. 
It was not going to be an easy victory for David. We might read through the story and just like, okay, boom, you know, he got, he got Jerusalem. But there's far more going on here than that. Now, there's a historical aspect of this that is really important, and we'll get there. But notice, first of all, then, what I'm calling the defeat or defeating the Jebusites. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and, who said to David, you will not come in here but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. So let's just kind of put that in perspective. They were so confident that no one could enter Jerusalem because of its fortifications and because of its walls that they made this statement, only the the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now the question is, what is that talking about? There's really two ideas. There is some historical evidence to show that there were certain kings in particular cities. Now, just remember back then, kings ruled and reigned typically in cities, and those cities were fortified, right? And so you had these kind of kingdoms with kings on, on, on their throne in their particular places. But when a, an army would come up against them, they would actually take those that were lame, those that were blind, and add them to the walls to give an appearance of having more soldiers that they would have to defeat. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that this is simply an insult. This is just kind of a a mockery of them trying to come into the city. And I think that's what's going on here by virtue of how David uses this terminology as we go through the story. So what we have here is, is them basically on the walls thumbing their nose to David and his army. These put-downs, these vulgar gestures, these curses were all part of the preliminaries of ancient battles. If you watch some movies or you do some study, you realize that when two armies came to meet each other, they didn't just go, you know, yeah, and they're going to go into the fight. There were always lots of challenges that went on, you know, people that thought that they were, you know, they could win the battle going out and being the champion, that kind of stuff. And then there was all sorts of insults, and I won't tell you what the, those were, but there were lots of them that would go on, and then the battle would actually take place. Okay, Now, that's actually what we saw in the story of David and Goliath. When David comes on the scene, what's Goliath doing? He's coming out with the two armies who are arrayed together, facing one another. No one's fighting, and Goliath is out there saying, all right, who's the man here? You know who he was talking about. How about Saul. He was mocking and scorning the king of Israel at that point in time, and he was challenging him. Same kind of thing that's going on here, thumbing their nose at the enemies here. So even so, the Jebusites would, have to, uh, would eventually have to eat their words. Notice verse 8, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. I think a reference here to the Jebusites themselves. Who are hated by David's soul. David was not happy about the insults that he was receiving. Okay? That's the point there. Now we're not exactly sure how David's men specifically got into the city, except for the fact that we have the statement here they got up uh, through the water shaft to attack. So somehow they figured out the irrigation system of the city and used, David used his skill and ingenuity. And the men went up and penetrated, and that's, that's the image that we're kind of thinking through here that the story reveals. And they, they caught the city, and they defeated the Jebusites. Now, ultimately, we're told in verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of, of Zion 
that is, the city of David. Now, friends, the significance of this victory is that it would accomplish three things. Number one, it would shift the central focus of the new kingdom away from Hebron and away from Mahanaim, which was in the north, and now would bring the focus into one capital city. That would be the place that he would rule this new nation of Israel. So it was brought now to this new city. Verse 9, And David lived in the synagogue and called it the city of David. Not, not synagogue. Lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo onward. Now this is not saying he did this, he went into the city, he did this, he did this. There is some chronology here, but this is talking about during his reign. He fortified the city. During his reign, he built all these things. So it, this was a, a process of building, a process of accomplishment. The second significance is this. Verse 11. It would be the location of David's new house or new home. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David's house. This is where he was going to live this is going to be his residence now. And notice, just a little sideline here, we have a Gentile king who is now serving David, who's honoring David, who is the king of Israel, who's coming and providing these resources to build the house. New change of attitude among the region's kings about this particular king. The third thing is this, Jerusalem would also be the place where David would continue to raise his family. Now this is not a pristine picture. The writer here is not trying to paint David as being a, a perfect king. There certainly is some imperfection in what we're about to read. And that's the realism here. Yet, in the bigger picture of things, this was God's kingdom that he was establishing with David. And the significance here is the fact that David's family did grow. He had many sons, he had many daughters. Then the narrator stresses the great, greater significance of David's gaining Jerusalem. And there's two things that are worth noting here. Number one, David became greater and greater. Why? Because the Lord, the God of hosts, was what? Was with him. It's this theme, again, growing greater and greater. Remember how Saul's house was getting weaker and weaker and David's was getting greater and greater? This is coming now to a focal point. This is David on his throne in the kingdom. And now even as the king in the kingdom, that kingdom is growing greater and greater and greater. Because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then notice also in, uh, in, in verse 12 here, that David knew, this is the second thing that we see, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Not for the sake of David, but for the sake of his people Israel. You see, the, the paradigm that's going on here is not a paradigm of saying, hey, David, you're the king, everyone should worship you. This is God saying, you're the king, you are in my place to care for my people. All of this was for God's people. And David knew why he was there. So all this was so that God's people could be under God's rule in God's place. And all of that David was going through was, was being really a vessel for God to accomplish and provide 
his love for his people. Now this is all looking at the defeat of the Jebusites. There's, there's a significant aspect of that. But there's another aspect here that takes us even further and really is more significant than what I've just shared here, although it builds on this. It's fulfilling God's promises. The emphasis of David's victory over the Jebusites and securing Jerusalem is that it was a fulfillment of God's promise made to Abraham some 800 years earlier. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Now, we don't think typically of the Jebusites and think, oh, God's promises, do we? Now, we think of Abraham and God's promises, but I want to put those two things together because they're all coming together here in 2 Samuel 5. Genesis 15, and let's begin at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, or Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. No, there's no qualifiers. I'm giving you this land. All right? From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I am giving to you. Now, friends, this is God's promise of how he is going to bless Abraham, how he's going to bless Abraham's descendants. Now, when God promised the land to Abraham's descendants, land from the Nile to the Euphrates, he was talking about the land that was occupied by these peoples, and the story of God's fulfillment of his promises is one that takes place over time. And this promise is repeated in the Bible. It was referred to uh, on a number of other occasions but in particular, it's, it's, it's repeated and referred to until the time of the conquest. It was repeated to Moses at the time of the Exodus, Exodus chapter 3 and verses 8 and 17. It's repeated by Moses as he gives the law to Israel. Um, it was repeated by Joshua at the end of the conquest of Canaan. And the, in the conquest, they actually went out and defeated these people groups. Part of God's justice and judgment on them. And it was the basis, when Joshua is reciting what God said to Abraham, and he continued to say to his people, he says all these things because these would all then be the basis of the dividing of the lands to the various tribes. That's the context in which it's used. But with the conquest, um, but... With the conquest uh, almost complete, one group, the tribe of Judah, could not completely drive out a pesky group of people called the Jebusites. Joshua 15, verse 63. Joshua 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. 
So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day, the writer of Joshua is saying. And then we jump over to Judges, and we find another tribe of Israel. That would be Benjamin, Judges 1.21, and notice what it says there. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. In other words, the only peoples yet to be defeated who were listed in that promise to Abraham and his descendants are, guess who? The Jebusites. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in all the story in 1 Samuel, even the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's no discussion about Jerusalem. No one even wants to go near Jerusalem. Why? Because the Jebusites are there, and the city of Jerusalem is pretty impregnable. It's a fortification. And so they just bypass it. They just constantly go in other places. It's there. The Jebusites are living there. But the kingdom just kind of, you know, those nations just kind of all kind of bypass it all. And with David's conquering Jerusalem, he is fulfilling God's promise. Just get, get the tone of this. And here's the point, and you see it up on the screen. God's promises are sure in spite of chronological distance. 800 years. God promises, I'm going to do this. And then maybe a few hundred years later, most of that promise is fulfilled, but it's not completed. Does that mean that God doesn't keep his promises? I mean, wouldn't he just do it all at one time? Well, sometimes God's promises are fulfilled, not according to your timetable, but according to God's timetable. Now, friends, this is helpful for us because there may be people who come to us mocking us, saying things like, where then is the promise of his coming? How long are you going to wait for the return of the Messiah? Didn't he say he was going to come? And didn't he say he was going to come soon? And it's been 2,000 years. Take him to 2 Samuel 5. Show them that God is not limited in the fulfilling of his promises by their understanding of time. God will keep his promises in spite of chronological distance. When God promises something, we need to trust him to be faithful, to keep that promise. We may get discouraged. We may get weary in waiting, or we're thinking that he's not moving fast enough. He's not moving according to our timetable. But friends, we need to force um, uh, his promise into our framework. No, we don't. We, we, we have trouble doing that, don't we? We have trouble taking his promises and forcing it into our framework because our framework wants to overrule what God says. No, we need to rest in God's sovereign framework rather than our framework. And friends, this is God's promises being fulfilled in David by establishing him as king, by him defeating and gaining Jerusalem. And the third thing here is this, in, in David defeating the Philistines. <laughs> Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king, 
you probably know what I'm going to say. The Philistines always hear, don't they? Just, I mean, you know, something good happens, and the next thing in the word is the Philistines heard. It's just like they're always there. They're always ready to pounce, right? It says, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. We're not exactly sure which stronghold is being talked about. Is it the stronghold in Jerusalem? Is it another stronghold where David actually um, gathered with his men during his time of uh, being chased by, by, by Saul? Um, was, it, was it some other place? We're not exactly sure. Um, but this all goes back to 1 Samuel 4, verse 6, where the Philistines heard the Israelites shouting because they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Remember that? They were treating the Ark of the Covenant like a, like a rabbit's foot, and they were all celebrating. And the Philistines are kind of like a, a fox that just won't give up trying to get the chicken out of the coop. You know, the owner comes and nails everything shut, and along comes the fox the next night. He's going to find some way in. He's going to find some way to get this done. That's the Philistines. They're just constantly nagging, constantly there, constantly trying again and again to undermine Israel and undermine God's purposes. And, of course, the context of the story here is that it wasn't too long ago that the Philistines came and actually defeated Israel and defeated Saul and a number of his sons. But there's a new king in town. His name is David. Ah, but there's some history with David, too. Remember what David did. As David, he kind of defected, so to speak, in a deceptive way, played the part aligned himself with one of the kings of the Philistines, served him, and they were actually going to that same battle where Saul was going to ultimately die, and the Philistine leaders from the other city said, no, David, you can't come. So he sent away, because they were concerned that David would turn on them in battle. And now the same David that they sent away is king of Israel. We're not happy campers. Because you were fooling us. The truth has come out. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of the kingdom always seem to hear the progress of the kingdom and want to do something about stopping the kingdom? Why, why is it that people get so uptight because we're sharing the gospel? I mean, like, you know, that's going to cause trouble for people because we want to tell them some good news. Oh, shut it down. Can't have that good news here can't hear about Jesus, you know, controversial. We're not telling people to go out and kill other people. We're telling people to love one another and to pursue Christ. But the enemies of the kingdom, what do they do? They want to squelch the gospel. But for David and the United Kingdom of Judea and Israel, the two battles that we're about to look at here against the Philistines are, are far more significant than maybe they appear at first. They both take place in the valley of Rephaim, so both in the same location, which, by the way, from that valley, you can see Jerusalem. So they're coming right into the heart of Israel. They're coming right into that place and, 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 and in a sense, flapping their wings and showing their strength and saying, all right, David, what are you going to do? And it's worth remembering that these battles are not taking place necessarily in any chronological order, 
based on what else we've looked at in chapter 5. In other words, while David is fortifying Jerusalem, these battles are taking place. It's not that Jerusalem was completely fortified. It wasn't that the, the, the kingdom was at its height necessarily. This is all in process here. Now, the importance of these two battles is significant. If the Philistines had defeated David and his armies in either of these two battles, it's likely that the stability of David's reign as king uh, would be in jeopardy. But we know that God's in control of these things, and we understand the redemptive plan, and we understand that God and his power and his sovereignty would not let that happen. Interestingly, though, two centuries later, Isaiah would reflect on this, these two very battles in Isaiah 28 and 21. He says this, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed, strange uh, is his deed, and to work his work, alien in his work. Now, the context is a little different. Isaiah is speaking to a, 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 an Israelite people who are in rebellion. And he's, he's warning them, saying, in the same way that God rose up on that day and defeated these enemies, is the same way that God will rise up against anyone like you, even, who will mock me. But he says, in reflection, these battles were God's deed and God's work, that he will rise up and he will be roused. These two battles, friends, are very much like the, 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 the kind of empire-changing battles. They have these overtones in them, kind of like Britain's Trafalgar, where they defeated the French and the, the Spanish um, fleets in the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Kind of like D-Day, where the combined armies were able to, to get on the land to begin the actual pursuit of Hitler and his armies. These two battles are two of Israel's greatest deliveries. Now, let's just briefly walk through these. David inquires of the Lord. He says, shall I go up? And the Lord answers and says, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And how did God do his deed and rise up? And here's the language. Here's the picture that is used here. He broke through like a breaking flood. God, in the midst of that battle, it says, this is God breaking through. He's the one that is at work. His armies were going with the armies of, of Israel, and they break through the Philistines. This huge army that is an array before them, God just breaks through like a flood. And what's the result? The Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Hmm. Reminds me of an ark story we read a little earlier. The idols of the Philistines are not gods. They're just idols that later would be burned. The second battle now, verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, oh, you shall not go up. He says, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching, and the idea there is that the, the heavenly army is at work in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army 
of the Philistines. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that David inquired, and God had two different answers for a very similar battle. David didn't assume that just because the situation was the same that he didn't need to inquire of the Lord. He didn't simply rely on what he had learned before, although that was that's something he could do. He still went to God and said, what is it that I need to do? And God was going to use a different strategy this time. And so David listened to what God said, and he followed what God said. And the result is the Philistines are defeated from Geba to Gezer. In other words, from Jerusalem area all the way to the Mediterranean, the Philistines are defeated. Now, friends, this is what Abner said the Lord had promised to David. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their armies. David, in coming in as king, is fulfilling the promises of God. David in taking Jerusalem is now fulfilling the promises of God. David defeating these Philistines in this way. The writers want to, wanted to remind us once again of the fact that, that God's promises are fulfilled in David. And these combined victories for David demonstrate the formidable power of the God of Israel. And what his good promises will do, even if the enemy is frustratingly relentless in his pursuit of God's children. Now, friends, this would not be David's last battle, would it? And the reality is, we, because of the fact that we're walking with God, are facing this relentless enemy. It just never stops. The moment you think that the battle's done and I can relax and I can just enjoy myself, new battle, new strategy, new prayer, new sorting out the word of God to figure out how God wants me now to come against this particular enemy, to, to come in this particular battle. But the reality is that God, when he promises something, will accomplish his, his promises. And our responsibility is to inquire and to listen and to obey and to trust and to see him work. Because he keeps his promises. Well, let's bring all this to a close with three things. First of all, number one, you and I need a king. You and I need a king to rule your life. And friends, that king's name is Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so to have Jesus as your king means by implication that you are not your own king. Or to say it so everyone's included, so that you are not your own queen. Okay? We all need a king, and we are not it. He is the king. So the question is, who rules your life? 
Is it you or the king? Is it the disciple or the teacher? Is it the, the servant or is it the master? Is it the creature or is it the creator? To have Jesus as your king means that you want his rule over your life. You say, well, I, you know, Jesus is my king, but you don't want to listen to what he has to say. Oh, Jesus is my king, but you're not willing to obey him. You're not willing to take him seriously. You're not willing to worship him. To have Jesus as your king means that you are submitting to his rule. Why does he say I can't do that? Why does he put that parameter there? Why does he not want me to have fun? Do you actually think that God created you so that you can't have fun in this life? If people think that way, they have a distorted view of God because they're mixing up the pleasures of this world with the joy that we can have in Christ, which is far greater than the pleasures of this world. God allows us to have fun. You know, we can play a sport. We can enjoy the beauty of, of, of nature. We can go skiing. We can watch people fall down going ice skating. There's all sorts of fun we can have. But we have joy in Christ. And, and I think this is, one of those, this is one of those scenarios, friends, that, that others think of Christians, that, that as Christians, to, to submit to the king means to kind of have a, an oppressive life. And you know, the reality is that, that actually might be what you're going through because you have a distorted view of God. To have Jesus as your king means that you recognize his authority in your life. And so you're constantly coming to him and saying, God, how do you want me to respond now? How do you want me to approach this now? Things change. Scenarios are different. And just because at one point in time in your life, you, you went to God and you said, hey, what should I do? And he was very clear in giving you direction this way. It doesn't mean that today that's exactly what he wants you to do. You submit to him. You listen to him. Now be careful when you rebel against this king because it will only bring trouble unless, of course, you're willing to bow down in repentance, humbly, and, and expose before him and confess before him your unfaithfulness and your unwillingness to be loyal. But now, by virtue of your repentance, you're seeking to be restored to him. Our ruler welcomes that. And you don't have to go through some special, you know, bureaucratic process in order to bow down before our king. Because you can do it right here, right now, where you're sitting, wherever you are. You can boldly come before the throne of grace. There's a reason it's called a throne, because on that throne sits a what? A king. Not only do you need a king, but we need a place. We need a place. God has created us as his children, called us to be his followers, and he's called us to live out our lives in a place. And by place, I'm not necessarily saying something physical, but I'm saying a realm, which is where his people gather, which is the church. When you think about the church. Think about the church as this 
This haven in the midst of ungodliness. It is the place where God's people gather. It is the times when those people come together to minister, to share the word of God, to encourage one another, to worship him together. We need a place. And there's a sense, friends, that um, we are living in what's called the already not yet. God's kingdom is already here, spiritually speaking, by virtue of the church, but it is not yet fully realized because the Lord has not returned to this earth to establish his physical kingdom. So in this already not yet, we have the privilege of being part of this church. His kingdom was initiated, the beginning of the church He is is going to be consummated when he returns. So we are followers of Jesus Christ, are to live out our lives through his new creation, this church. That means we're to celebrate the church. That means we're to love the church. We're to prioritize the church. We're to invest in the church. We're to hunger for the gathering of God's people. Book of Ephesians says, don't neglect the gathering." of God's people together. And the implication is if we neglect it, we open the, the, the door to sin and deception and entanglement with this world. My friends, I know you're here, right? You're saying, okay, Pastor Rod, ease up a little bit. I'm here. I showed up today, right? Yeah, but you know what? Sin in this world will cause us to wander and to think lightly of the beautiful gift that he's given us the church. And we'll come up with all sorts of justifications and rationalizations why it's not that big. Oh, it's okay if I don't do this and I'm not regular in this. No, it isn't. Not because I'm pastor saying that, because God is saying, why would you neglect who you are as a child of mine when you're supposed to be created to gather with others who are part of your family? You and I need the church, and God's created it for our benefit. Remember how God established David as king because of his love for who? His people. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Yes, that was a wonderful sacrifice, but ultimately it was for the love of his people, the church. So we need a king. We need a place. And friends, we also need, finally, a deliverer to fight our battles for us. That does not mean that we don't fight in the battles. David and his army went out to fight the battles, and they fought, and they killed. But there was this aspect of divine work going on in the battle. And God is is the means by which we are able to fight the battles. He is our deliverer who has gone out to fight our battles for us and has been glorious, victor- gloriously victorious on our behalf. He secured our victory through his death and resurrection. And friends, that's an eternal reality that we hold dear. It's an eternal reality that should bring us great comfort and confidence. It's an eternal reality that bears fruit in hope, hope of eternity with him. But hear this, we live in a physical reality that reveals to us the troubles of this life. 
when Ed was praying this morning as we began our service, he, he started to, to list off the kind of things that our people, God's people, are struggling with here. And that's, this is the world in which he's called us to live. We face trials, which are often in circumstances that are largely out of our control. We're still tempted. We struggle with that. And we constantly sin. That's just the reality of, of who we are. And that brings great discouragement. And we need to remember that what Jesus did on the cross for our eternal life is just as important for our present life. It is because of what he has done on the cross and the confidence that we have of our new position in Christ that we now can live our lives for his glory, not based on performance, not trying to impress God with what we've done, but to now live out of what God has done by virtue of his grace and mercy. See, he breathed new life into our souls, and we, we, we live now in the reality of that new life being fleshed out. So therefore, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of our true standing before God. We're sinners who have been given life by Christ. We're sinners covered by the blood of Jesus. We're sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ, remembering that there is nothing that you and I can do to be more holy in our eternal standing before God. I want to finish up, though, with a quote from Jerry Bridges, who I think writes really, really helpfully on this subject. He says, The good news that our sins are forgiven, or is that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's death, fills our hearts with joy, gives us courage to face the day, and offers us hope that God's favor will rest upon us, not because we're good, but because we are in Christ. You see, we need a king, we need a place, the church, but we also need to rest on the deliverer, who is Jesus, yes, but it's what Jesus has done, it's what he's accomplished, and living out of that victory day by day. And as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, I just want you to contemplate the fact that you have a king seated on a throne, high and lifted up, in, in his full majesty, who has created the church for his glory and for your good, and he is your deliverer, who has fought the battle already. He is victorious, but he has called you to live out of that victory today, and the next day, and the next day to be thankful that he's given us that hope, that assurance, that confidence. Lord, thank you for 2 Samuel 5, for us, Lord, to be able to see the fulfillment of your promises coming together in David. But Lord, not only that, but to, 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 to see as we push that ahead, to see that your, your promises are also, and, and more accurately and more fully, fulfilled in your son Jesus Christ and the fact that he is our king and the fact that he is the head of um, your body, the church, and the fact that he is our ultimate deliverer. Lord, as we, as we pause and as we consider the things that we're going through right now, give us perspective. Help us to lean on what you say. Help us to trust your promises. And Lord, as we celebrate 
um, your body and your blood this morning. May we pause and reflect, Lord, not just on the facts of this, but Lord, the implications of what you have accomplished on the cross. Your implications eternally, but Lord, even the implications practically as we live our day seeking to, to honor you, seeking to live out of the joy that we have in you. And Lord, by your strength, help us, Lord, to be mindful of the beauty and the wonder, Lord, of what you have done for us on the cross. We ask this now in your precious name.